the lampshade was covered in tiny pastel butterflies. After tucking her in, he quietly turned the small black knob, filling the room with a soft light. He picked up the book lying on her nightstand, and he started reading. Suddenly, the little girl sprang up with an urgent question, like most questions are for little girls. Daddy, when is Jesus going to come back? He says, well, I, I don't know. Could be any time, I guess. You know. So she nestled back into her bed, pulling her down comforter up to her chin. And the father continued in his story. Seconds later, Daddy, could he come back soon? He says, yeah, I mean, I guess she could, he could come back soon. Yeah, honey, what, let's just keep reading, okay? She sat with her back against the headboard, pursed her lips, and furrowed her brow. He kept reading. Daddy, 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 could he come back tonight? Wisely closing the book, and breathing a soft, slow sigh, the father responded, he could, honey, yeah, but, but why? She said, Daddy, could you get my hairbrush? I want to get ready. And every father in the room goes, aww, right? Super charming story. All right, why? Well, outside of the obvious charm of butterfly lamps and bedtime stories, there's a deep abiding truth nestled in there, and it's this. Where you set your hope is where you invest your life. I'll say it again. Where you set your hope is where you invest your life. More on that in a minute. So today uh, marks the end of a 12-week sermon series called The Whole Story. I hope this has been beneficial for you as we've walked through the pages of Scripture. Uh, last week, Pastor Ryan stopped at the movement of the church. And he reminded us that the church is not meant to make people comfortable, but it is meant to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. And so this week, we're actually going to conclude the series, but before we do, we're going to take a look at the last chapter, and as you might have guessed, Jesus' return. Now, I need to say there's about a billion ways we could get at this. We could talk about when. When is Jesus? Because everybody's got an opinion about that, right? We could talk about the millennial kingdom. We could talk about the tribulation. We could talk about what eternity is going to be like. But in, in prayer and preparation for this, I want to focus our attention on what I think is going to be the most helpful thing to focus on, namely, what do we do in the meantime? How does Jesus' second coming actually inform the way that I live my life? This dash between my birthday and the day that I go home, this little dash, what happens in the meantime? So... Great stories have great endings, don't they? Right? Cinderella, her slipper finally finds its way back on her foot and they dance the night away. Right? Frodo and Sam, they take the ring into the fires of Mount Doom. The ring falls in the fire and all of Middle Earth is saved. Sleeping Beauty is awakened by Prince Charming and True Love's first kiss and they all live, help me out, happily ever after. Right? 
Good stories have great endings. Well, our story has the best ending of them all. But we live in the in-between, the already not-yetness of our world. We are a barefoot Cinderella. We are Frodo and Sam still hacking their way through the wilds. We are a half-asleep princess in the forest waiting for our someday prince to come back and take us where we are always meant to be. But to be clear, I believe the only way my life makes any sense is to live it in light of the certainty of Jesus' coming back. So, in light of that, what do we do? All right, it's 63 AD. Imagine this with me. 63 AD. The gospel is sweeping like, like wildfire through the Roman world, and it's causing a lot of confusion. People's lives are being changed. The battle is going forward. It's been 30 years since that conversation in the upper room that Jesus had with his disciples. It's been 30 years since his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. It's been 30 years since they gathered, received the Holy Spirit, and went out as commissioned missionaries to change their world. It's been 30 years. And that brings us to 1 Peter chapter 1. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and get to 1 Peter chapter 1. If not, you can follow along on the screens. Uh, it'll all be up there also for you. Peter, right? Peter, who followed at Jesus' heels for the better part of three years. Peter, who ran to the tomb. Peter, who jumps out of the boat. Peter, who was the first one to start preaching in, in Acts. Peter gives us an incredible picture of what life ought to look like with hairbrush in hand. Three ways that Jesus' return ought to affect our life. So read with me, 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to look in verse 13. Therefore, he says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile, which is a very strange word to use to describe life. Exile. Knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest, or that is like shown, he was shown in these last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him the glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. 
For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, a lot in there, right? A lot, of, lot in there. We're going to get to most of it. Three ways that Jesus' return ought to affect our lives today. And here's the first one. The first one is we hope boldly. We hope boldly. Did you catch it in verse 13? He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there are, there are two kinds of hope, aren't there? There is a hope-so hope. Like, I really hope the Browns could just get like three. Three home game wins. This, see, it's all I want. I just want three. That's how low the bar is. That's my hope-so hope. Okay, just give me three, please. I'm tired of being embarrassed. I hope that'll happen. But then there's this other kind of hope over here. It's called a no-so hope. And it's not based on what you'd like to happen or what would be great, but it's based on what will happen. A no-so hope. What kind of hope is Peter talking about here? Is it hope-so hope or no-so hope? No-so hope. According to Peter, he's saying, look, this is going to happen. One day the clouds will part. Jesus will come back. There is an end to this story. We are not left as orphans, praise God. It's going to happen. Jesus has never broken one promise yet, so I say he's good for this one. This is a no-so hope. So hope boldly. How do I do that? It's right there in the text. There's two actions. Make sure you see it. Preparing your mind for action. Here's the first one. And being sober-minded. Okay, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded. Like, at first, they seem like opposites, don't they? Think about it. Like, prepare my mind for action. Literally, in Greek, it means to roll up your sleeves. Like, it's this old English word, gird up your loins, which you don't say because it sounds gross, right? But, like, get ready to do something. Prepare your minds for action. And then there's the second one, which is be sober-minded. Like, let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Let's think about what we're actually doing. This like very interesting tension here. Be sober-minded, prepare your minds for action. But what's even more striking is who is actually saying this? Peter. Like open mouth, insert foot, Peter. Right? You read the Gospels, Peter is crazy. He's all over the place. He jumps out of boats. He, he confesses Jesus and then he denies him, right? Ready, fire, aim, Peter. When I read the Gospels, I think like Peter's like the Bruce Willis of the disciples. He's like, did I just blow up a building? It's okay. Onward, Jesus, let's go. Like so impulsive. Like, come on. This is Peter. And he's writing this to say that our no-so hope is living in this constant tension between acting very boldly and thinking very soberly. This is a very hard thing to do. Most of us are good at one or the other. We're not very good at living in the tension of both of those things. It takes resolve. It takes grit. It takes something that most of us do not have naturally in us. So the story goes that the young parents were desperate. 
Their six-week-old had a cold so bad that her eyes had swollen shut. And in 1820, a baby with a bad cold was something to worry about. Unfortunately, the family doctor was away, and so desperation makes desperate people do desperate things. So they called a guy who had no medical training, but nevertheless called himself a doctor, desperate to alleviate their child's suffering. And this doctor said, you know what we ought to do? Um, We're going to take hot mustard paste, and we're going to put it on your child's eyes, and hopefully that will dull the swelling and bring her back. By the time they realized they were duped, the doctor had skipped town, leaving them hopeless, alone, desperate, and their baby girl permanently blind. And if the story ended there, we would have reason for sadness. But it doesn't end there. Something far greater was happening. This little girl grew up to be a songwriter. And she would write songs, she would write poetry that would connect people with this no-so-hope of Jesus for generations to come. Most of these songs carried allusions, interestingly, to the metaphor of sight or vision. And she wrote songs like this. Near the cross, O Lamb of God, bring its scenes before me. Help me walk from day to day with its shadows over me. Blessed assurance, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his mercy, and I'm lost in his love. Fanny Crosby was being introduced at a public event just months before her own death, and the speaker remarked what a tragedy it was that she was born blind. She was quick to correct him. She says, no, no. He says, well, why? And she says, because when I get to heaven, the first face I'm going to see is Jesus. No so hope. And that kind of hope really ought to be enough for us. It really ought to. But the sad reality is we've become a Jesus and culture. Like, Jesus and my comfort, Jesus and my stuff, Jesus and my politics, Jesus and my right to be right, Jesus and my opinion, Jesus and... So let me ask you a very sad question. If Jesus isn't enough for you, what is? I've thought about how to get more specific on this. And I'm just going to get personal for a bit. I'm going to lower the wall, and I'm going to let you know how God is applying this text to my life. So here you go. Here's Here's what God's doing to Brandon Marshall through this text. Like everybody in this room, I get it. Like I know. I know I'm supposed to live light, my life in light of eternity and Jesus' second coming. I know that, right? But I get sideways sometimes, like all of us. And I get kind of like turned around and like eh, something happens and I get like just sideways. So here are three choices that I make that impair my ability to hope boldly. I want to hope boldly like everybody else. Here are three choices that I make often unconsciously that impair my ability to do it. Here's the first one. Distraction. Distraction. The first substitute for hope is distraction. It's like instead of looking down the road and focusing on Jesus, I'm like, squirrel. Like, there it goes. 
right? Because when I get discouraged and I get weighed down, the first thing I do is I'm like, uh, like I could like work on this faith muscle of hoping boldly. And I'm like, eh, mm, what is the recipe for butternut squash soup? You know, and like I'll get into this little wormhole and I'll be like, oh, there is a guy in Guam who just posted a picture of a sea turtle. I didn't know they had like sea turtles in Guam. That's pretty cool right? We just get distracted. And it's not about this, incidentally. It has nothing to do with this. It has everything to do with this. (laughs) I don't have to hope boldly if I can distract myself often enough. And we live in a world that is built for distraction, guys. Second thing I do is anesthesia, okay? Not literal anesthesia, unless you're like a dentist and that's your thing. Um, I mean like spiritual anesthesia, okay? See if you relate to this. It's like I just want to, like, stop for a bit. Like, slow down, world, let me get off. Like, I just want to, like, not hear anything or, like, not be bothered. I just, like, I want to get numb for a little bit. Does anybody ever feel like the pain is too great? Like, I don't want to deal with the pain. I just want to not feel it. Interestingly, anesthesia is not, like, a, not a wimpy thing. Like, workaholics, same deal. We're just numbing ourselves through a different device. <laughs> That's the second one I do. The third one is indulgence, and indulgence looks like this. I don't want to distract myself. I don't want to numb myself. I just want, like, the next thing. I bought into the idea that, like, bigger is better or more is better. So bigger house, newer addition, new car, new set of clothes, new, new, great, great, great. It's like if anesthesia is like this, like, sensory deprivation tank for the soul, like, indulgence is like a circus, it's like, I just want one more thing to parade. Come on. I just, just, I got to get on the next, next and best thing. Now, whatever your drug of choice, distraction, anesthesia, or indulgence, none of them ultimately work. Why? Because all three of these substitutes for hope are small, subtle idols that whisper, set your hope on what you can control. Because you can't control Jesus. So find something else that works. And here's the deal. That is like the definition of idolatry, right? It's like I've got this need right here, this pain or whatever, and it's something that Jesus is designed to fill, but I deem him unworthy. He's not giving me what I need. So I put him down and I put something else up in its place and I prop it. That is idolatry, And when we're faced with this idea that we are actual idol worshipers, we can do one of two things. We can either deny it, saying, oh, it's not really that bad. Come on, really? Ah." Like one night a month, it's not that bad. Or we can preach the gospel to ourselves. When we conclude, after a little while here this morning, we're going to sing a song called Jesus is Better because I love it, right? But the reason we're singing it is because it helps, us preach the, it helps us preach the gospel to ourselves. There's this line that says, you are better, make my heart believe, because most days I don't, and neither do you. We are all at various stages of unbelief. Now, you may be a Christian, you may have crossed a line, you are saved, but there are things about Jesus that you don't believe, If he is great, then you don't need control. 
if he is good, then you don't need to look anywhere else for satisfaction. But we, we, we don't believe these things really. We say we do, but we don't. And so what Peter is instructing us to do here is he says, hope boldly. Prepare your minds for action. We preach the gospel to ourselves because only the gospel can transform us. Which leads to my second point. First thing we do is we hope boldly. Here's the second one. We live differently. We live differently. Take a look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So Peter sets up a contrast here, right? It's right in the text. He says, not this, but this. Don't live like this, live this way. That first word, don't be conformed, is actually a really rare word in the New Testament and only shows up twice. And it basically means to cut out like a pattern, like to follow or to trace. Okay, a pattern, I got that. Like a pattern of what? Now here's where he sounds like the Peter that I know. The passions of your former ignorance. Right? Isn't that like a great phrase? Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Passion's not the problem, right? Jesus does not want mindless zombies following him around. He wants us to be passionate. Passion's not the problem. What's my problem? Our what? Our former ignorance. Let me buy you a cup of coffee this week. I'll tell you how many books full of former ignorance that I could fill up. (laughs) Plenty. Most of which I still don't even know about. This is still coming to light, right? But Peter's saying, not this, this. But then holiness, like, what, what is that? Come on, really? Can't we just settle for, like, good behavior? Because, like, holiness, that's kind of a high bar. I'm not sure I can reach that. So, Mandy and I um, like watching home renovation shows. You're smiling because you're, it's your guilty pleasure, too, Right? And I don't care what I'm doing. Like if I'm walk, watching, we're walking through the living room and there's one of those on the TV, it's like, it like pulls me in and I'm like, gotta watch it. I gotta see what they're doing to their kitchen. I don't know why. Now, all of these shows follow a very similar plot line, don't they? My favorite part of the plot is about 10 minutes in. Usually happens like 10 minutes in when the host, usually like wearing a roughed out flannel shirt, having a tape measure clipped to his belt and a carpenter's pencil tucked neatly behind his ear, We'll say something dramatic to the young couple. We'll say something like this. Well, I mean, I can do that, but uh, I'm going to have to tear it down to the studs. You know? And, like, the, the, the camera zooms in on the couple while they go, you know? And he goes, but, you know, I mean, it's going to take a couple extra weeks, and we're going to be cutting it really close to the budget, right? But uh, if, you, if you like it, it's, it's going to be great. I can do it for you. You know, and they think about it. You know, they're appalled at how much it's going to cost. And so they scurry over to the coffee shop with the camera following them while they talk about, like, what the flannel-clad genius is going to do for their kitchen. Right? This is, the, this is how this whole thing plays out, okay? And then, but it always pans out, doesn't it? Like, they come back after whatever, and they're like, wow. Like, make the face. I'm looking at you. Make the face they make when they come back in their room. What do they do? They go, I can't believe it. Look what you did. You know, it always pans out in the end. The entire house has been completely transformed. It just took a little longer, 
and cost a little bit more than what they were expecting. That is the same thing that God wants to do with you. There is a difference between light renovation and down-to-the-studs transformation, isn't there? Right? Our souls don't need light renovation. You don't need a new coat of paint and some new countertops. We need to be gutted, like down-to-the-studs. And just so you're clear, this isn't like a once thing. This is like an often thing. Like, yeah, hey, I, I trusted Jesus once when I was young, and I got baptized, I did this great thing, and now I'm living and kicking. Everything's great. Everything is, you know, peaches and sunshine, it's rosy, it's great. No, it doesn't really work like that. When you follow Jesus, your life is like a house that is perpetually covered in sawdust. Turn to the person next to you and say, I am a work in progress. Go ahead. Because Jesus is never done with you, Right? Some of you are like, it's about time you said that. (laughs) Because Jesus has transformed you. He is transforming you. And one day he will completely transform you. But we are in this in-between stage, this spot in the middle. And we don't like being a construction zone. So here's the question. Do you believe that you need transformation? Or have you bought into the lie that says all you need is a little light renovation. In the early 1900s, the London Times sent out a letter to famous authors asking a very simple question, what's wrong with the world today? No doubt they expected this like political posturing, you know, about the the class system or something, these very insightful comments. And my favorite writer, one of my favorite writers, G.K. Chesterton, He said this. Take a look at his response. Up on the screen, uh, where is it? So there it is. Dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world today? Dear sir, I am. This is a guy who gets that the first step is transformation, the first step in transformation is admitting that I have a problem. Not just that I have a problem, but I am the problem. And I need Jesus to transform me down to the studs. The church does not need polite people. The church does not need nice people. The church does not need smart people. The church does not need biblically literate people or theologically correct people. Those are good and necessary and those will come. But first, like first, The church needs transformed people, new people. If the church exists in the West in 100 years, which, by the way, is not a given, all right? Like, we can't just sit back in our chairs, drink our tea, and pretend like everything's all hunky-dory. If the church in the United States exists in 100 years, it will be because people have begged Jesus, saying, fix me, make me new, transform me. I'm going to give up a bunch of stuff to follow this Messiah because he's worth it and he's going to change my life from the inside out. That's the second thing we need. We need to live differently. Here's the last thing we need. Third, we need to love generously. And I hope you caught this. This is verse 32. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, here it is, 
love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's hard to do. That's so stinking hard to do. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Peter doesn't say, like, love one another, does he? He says, love one another earnestly because it's work. Some people are just plain hard to love. I'm sorry if that sounds bad or cynical, but it's just the truth. Some people are hard to love. People are disappointing. Smile at you one day, stab you in the back the next. One minute they encourage you, and the next minute they're tearing you down. And then, as if it wasn't enough, Peter says, love, each, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And I'm like, okay, that's it. I'm out. Like, really? Like, Thanksgiving and Christmas? I got to love these people earnestly from a pure heart, too? I can't just, like, fake it for a day? Or, like, when my neighbor's dog poops on my yard, I can't just go, it's okay. <laughs> like, I got to love the guy earnestly from a pure heart? That's so hard to do. Incidentally, I'm the neighbor whose dog poops on your yard, so I can say that. But this is really hard to do. This week, I had the opportunity to see something that I never have, and it blew me away. Uh, this past Monday, I, I went down to a courtroom in Canton, and Mandy and I stood with several couples from North Canton Chapel as we watched J.J. and Lisa Robertson um, formally complete the adoption process for their son. Blew me away. Had you been there, uh, by the way, standing room only, the judge said it was the largest crowd they'd ever seen for an adoption hearing. Had you been there, you would have seen this, all right? We, you'd look across the, 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 this group of people and you'd see somebody you know, like families and friends, and you'd see this like look in our eyes. It was like this wordless, understood joy that like could not be described and you just start smiling and mostly it was coming out of our eyes because we were all like weeping like babies, right? Like it's just, oh my gosh, this is so beautiful, right? And this formal courtroom, Right, this, the judge in her black robe, you know, and like these gray walls with like cherry wood, and the bailiff is all suited up and stern, right? And the court reporter is like, "This is serious. We got a metal detector. We got to go through." Oh man, like this very formal courtroom, which most days out of the week is just like any other office building. This room became like a worship service because you look and you see what God is doing, and you go, "Ah." Oh. Praise God for how this is connecting to this. And then there's this little boy whose life is going to be forever changed because of this kind of love and Christ-like care that was given to him who hasn't done anything. And it was absolutely beautiful. And one day he's going to get it. One day he will. Right now he's too busy like pushing around cars. And like, I, won't, I think he actually lifted up his shirt that the judge like tried to show her his belly button or something. And like it was super cool. And like little, she invited Avery to come up on the, on the desk to like pound her gavel, gavel to make it official. Like unbelievable. How is it possible to love somebody when it costs you? Because that's what he's telling us to do here. Earnestly. How is it possible? Answer. It's not. It is not possible on your own to love someone selflessly. But thankfully, Peter gives us 
the answer. Don't miss this. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Not of perishable seed. We could write that check. But of imperishable seed. Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, you do not know how to love. But one of the effects of Jesus applied to the human soul is our ability to love when we don't feel like it. It's what Jesus does. When you choose to follow Jesus, you release your right to love on your own terms. You don't have that option anymore. There are no contingencies. You don't get to love just lovable people. Anybody can do that, right? That's not love. That's just convenience and preference. You got to love the hard people because that's what Jesus does. Here's why this kind of love is so important to God, and I get amped up about it. Romans 5, 8. If you don't know that verse, you need to. Write it down in your margin. Go home and memorize it. Romans 5, 8. Here it is. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Like, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't, God didn't look at the situation and go, hey, um, like, I, I really love you guys down there, humanity. You're great. Um, you've kind of messed things up a little bit, and so here's what I want to do. I want to give you the opportunity to clean it up. I want you to fix up your life, make yourself a little more presentable, and, and then we'll talk, okay? Like, he didn't do that. He said, I'm going to step closer. I'm going to enter the fray, incarnate myself as the son in your world who will live a sinless life, grow up, and die for you so that we can have this restored relationship. God stepped closer, and so must we. God stepped closer, and so must we. So five ways to do that. Here you go. And then, then we're going to wrap up. It's always dangerous when you say, and then we're going to wrap up because... You know how that goes, <laughs> really? So five things, here you go. First one, take initiative. Take initiative. Don't make the burden to love based on somebody else's action. Like love is somehow contingent on what they do first. Your choice to love another person can never be based on whether or not they deserve it. Because none of us do. So don't wait for the phone to ring. Don't wait for them to apologize. You take the first step, crucify your pride, and get over it. Take initiative. Second thing, be sincere. Be sincere. I've heard a lot of people say this. This is terrible advice. I've heard a lot of people say it. Um, you have to love them, but you don't have to like them. Here's my only problem with that. I can't hear Jesus ever saying that. Can you? Jesus doesn't talk that way. The reason we do that is because I don't like somebody and I want to feel better about that. And so I tell myself that little anecdote or that little, that little aphorism so I'll feel better about the distance I've created between me and that person. That's why we say that. Christians ought to be the most loving people on the planet because we are the only people who have been shown the unconditional love of a holy God who I have done nothing but offend through my sin. There is nothing holding us back from being the most loving people on the planet. Be sincere. Three, seek restoration. 
Seek restoration. In a room this size, there's a good chance that a lot of us are nursing fractured relationships that have gone on for decades. People you don't talk to anymore. And I'm running the risk of overstepping my bounds, but guys, that grieves the heart of God. We have a God of restoration. Our God fixes stuff. Let's recover the heart of Jesus and do something about those relationships, can we? Fourth, love when it's inconvenient. Here's what I mean. In my experience, love will rarely be needed when it's convenient for me. It usually requires sacrifice. When Jesus returns, which he will, do you want to be found comfortable or do you want to be found loving? Because you can't always have it both ways. Last thing, love as a reflex. Love one another as a reflex. Solomon wrote in the book of Proverbs, he says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. I take that to mean it's better to smack somebody in the face than to hold back an I love you or an I'm grateful for you or a I appreciate you. When your heart is inclined to express affection, do it without thought of what you're going to get back. Just do it. At the end of my life, I will be found as being loving too liberally or loving too selectively, and I choose the first option. So, third thing we can do in the meantime is we love generously. So, I don't know when Jesus is coming back. If Hannah asked me that question at bedtime, I would probably say soon. I don't know if you have a hairbrush in hand, but our lives need to look like it. This story has the best ending ever. And I hope you know who the hero of this story is. Spoiler alert. It's not you. It's not me. It's Jesus. And so we're going to conclude here. I'm going to invite the band uh, back up on stage. And we're going to sing this song. It's called Jesus is Better. All right? And again, the reason we're singing it, so you know, is it helps us preach the gospel to ourselves. That line that says, more than all comfort, more than all riches, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. So you got about 30 seconds to a minute to get your heart to a place where you can actually sing that and mean it. All right, let's pray together. Bow with me. God, you are very good. God, you have been very merciful to us. You've been so kind You've been so selfless. You've been so loving. You've been gracious to us. You've held back your hand of righteous judgment and you spent it on your son who didn't deserve it. You are just and you are good and you are loving. Father, as we sing this song, we do declare in this space that Jesus is better than anything we could imagine. There's no better way to end this story than to talk about your son, what he has done, what he's given us. And so, God, I pray that we'd sing this from our heels, believing every word of it. God, you are good. We love you. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Stand with us if you would.